This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. to have Amy Bernstein. Woo! I, I like that they add stuff in. Okay, let's <laughs> talk about what we're drinking. So I am drinking because CR complained on the last podcast about what I was drinking because it was <laughs> gin. So now it's vodka and it's it's a vodka and Sprite. It's weird. Oh, I'm so good. Of, yeah, it's good. I'm having a lot of weird weird drink combinations recently. CR, what are you drinking? I'm actually doing vodka and Powerade. Oh, so look at that. Look, that's almost healthy. That's some healthy stuff right there. Um, Yeah, you keep your electrolytes going on while you're while you're drinking the alcohol, which is awesome. (laughs) Exactly. I, you know, I, I'm really a wine girl. I really am. I'm just, I've been in love with wine for so long. And I will just tell you right now, I am literally working my way single-handedly through my second case. That's case, y'all. 12 bottles each of Pigou de Premier Van de Provence Rosé. Oh, wow. All right. It's really good. It's really good. And I, I'm drinking it by the caseload, which means a lot. Oh, <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. So for fans out there that may not know you, what do you write? I am a multi-genre fiction writer primarily, which is that I hop, skip, and jump from uh, romance to YA fantasy to mystery thrillers. I just refuse to pick a lane. I like it. I like it. So when did you, when did you begin this jumping lanes frogger exercise? Well, I started writing, um, I wrote a YA novel, I don't know, a, a dozen or so years ago, and then I started writing plays, and that was really fun, and then I decided that uh, I really needed to start writing novels, I just needed to do it, and uh, so I set off doing that, and I, I just kind of wrote a couple in a row, um, which is, it's nice to be getting some published, and I just figure out what story I want to tell, and then I figure out the best way to tell that story and I don't care what genre it's in it's it's whatever fits it so that's that's how I do that are you self-published then entirely no I have two traditional novels one just came out uh this month I have another traditionally published novel coming out in August um so my romance the Nighthawkers about um time traveling archaeology excavations just came out in June and okay. the, Potre- the Potrero Complex is a dark and dystopian mystery thriller, which comes out in August from Regal House Publishing. Um, and then I will self-pub, I am self-pubbing a YA fantasy, also dark. I like the dark stuff um, <laughs> in, in September. Very cool. Very cool. So when did the first novel come out? Well, it depends on when we want to start counting. If we want to go back to 2008 when I decided, hey, I want to write a novel. And I just did it and self-published it and didn't think about it. And I didn't take it seriously. You could consider that the start or you can consider that the false start. <laughs> and then you got to you got to fast forward like, I don't know, to 2015, 16, when I really decided to get serious about it. 
And um, I still have yet another novel that's um, not published, which you know I'm hoping is going to get out there. Um, so somewhere on 2015, 2016, I started really doing it seriously. Very cool. And um, so how many books total have you published? I lose track sometimes. Um, so if we count everything, uh, four, and then I have one full novel that's not published. Well, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. How's, how's the, did you always write? Were you, was that like a thing for you and it got put on hold for a while? Let's go back in time, Amy. Let's, <laughs> let's, go, let's start, start at the beginning. beginning. Yeah. Right. You don't want to do that because that would, that would go way, that'd go like, we'd have to go back into the time machine. Um, here's the thing, you know, I wouldn't call myself a writer until recently. I felt like I had to do something magical to earn it. But the truth is I earned my living for decades as a writer in nonfiction because I've been a journalist and a speech writer and a communications director and I've done all the things. And um, that's writing. And uh, I did all that. And it's like, you know what? I love this. I love this writing stuff. And it's really the only thing I can do well. I'm not a great cook. Um, but I needed fiction. I needed to do fiction. I needed to just make a bunch of shit up. I really did. No, I can understand that because sometimes writing real stuff, real stuff is, and no matter how dark you go, the real stuff can be really interesting, right? Yeah. It's yeah. something. Oh, so true. So true. Um, well, go ahead, Chelsea. Well, I was just going to say, like, I know you said you like the dark stuff and you kind of just write what you're feeling, what the story goes on, but is there a particular genre that you find yourself more drawn to? The dark genre. Um, no. Well, they can I, all be dark. I, no, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I would say, I would say not yet. Like, I don't, um, no, not yet, which is to say, I think I'm going to keep lane hopping. Um, I'm trying to write something that we would call literary fiction now, which is really, really hard um, because it's got to be so well put together and, you know, pretty serious and all that stuff. And it, it's tough. Um, but I loved right more than I thought. I loved writing the paranormal romance that just came out. Um, and men even like that book because there's science in it, archaeology and all this cool stuff. But so I might write another romance someday, but I'm not sure. And I also loved the challenge of writing a, a mystery because you have to figure stuff out and make sure that the reader doesn't figure it out ahead of when they're supposed to, which is really hard to do. Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I, you know, I do thriller and stuff like that but the, the I have a friend that does cozy mysteries and she's amazing at it just absolutely amazing at it but not something I'm like nope nope I'm good I can I can pass on that you know I can I can wait on the mystery thing because I think it's it's definitely a differently interlaced story but it sounds like you write standalones are any of your books a series no, I have not done the series thing. And I, I really respect all the authors that are able to build these worlds that go on for books. I, for me, when I get to the end of a book that I'm writing, I feel like I don't need to stay in that world. I've done that world. But maybe I'll, you know, I, never say never, right? You just never know. No, that's true. I mean, a lot of people 
enjoy having the ride with the characters. There are some books absolutely that are standalone, but I think a lot of it is that your audience gets excited about what's happening in the, whether it's the world or yes. with specific characters in the world. It's true. You know, they get super excited about it. So, you know, what can they carry forward with it? So do you, are you writing full-time now? I do write full time, but I am also a certified nonfiction book coach. So I have book coaching clients where I'm helping other authors on their journey for to find their best path to get published. So that takes up some time as well. And, and as you probably know, my gosh, when you have books out there, I'm spending so much time marketing right now. <laughs> no, so, that's definitely a thing. I think that's, it's yeah. so funny because we talk to so many authors and this is thing, regardless of how you're published, right? I don't yeah. care, you know, it doesn't matter. You have to market, you have to do branding, you have to do public relations stuff. And it's so funny because this is the number one thing that is shocks everybody that there's a marketing aspect to it, which is funny. If you think about the ads, the stuff you see to get the books, I think a lot of people just go, did that just magically happen? And it just happens behind the scenes. But the, you know, the authors think something and then they go, oh, I have to do that weird you know and most of us don't have elves like doing it all we don't have keyboard elves doing it all for us behind the scenes do we but i also write you know i i write essays and poetry as well so i've got a lot of things that are in the mix and you know on a day when if i just feel like i can't work on long form fiction the, the good news is that there's almost always an essay percolating or um, suddenly I'll have some lines for poem that I want to write and that kind of thing. So I love switching, I guess. So not am I, not, I'm not only multi-genre in fiction, I just switch it off. I'm multi-genre in, you know, types of writing that I, that I do. Well, what had you get into coaching? What made you decide to go that path? Because I have, um, such a long background, first of all, in the nonfiction word world, Mm -hmm. um, and because that's, I've always, um, you know, as soon as I got to a certain point, I've always been interested in mentoring and helping others. And I already do workshops and trainings and teaching people how to write grants. So I, I really, really enjoy that. And when I found out um, about the Author Accelerator um, certification program to become a book coach, I realized I could bring a lot of worlds and skills together. Um, and so it's really an amazing um, experience to help another author sort of take a raw idea and begin to help them create structure around it and figure out, well, you actually have to write chapters that hang together and here's how we're going to do that. It's, it's really fun. Oh, so what is that like? We haven't really talked to a lot of book coaches. What is that like from the coach side? And then what is it like from the author side? Right. So there are coaches, there are certified coaches for nonfiction and fiction. And really what the coach is, is an accountability partner for the writer to make sure that they're getting stuff done, but also kind of a navigator who really helps provide them tools and structure so that they understand where they're going in the work and in the writing, and also very much a champion. Um, you know, writing is such a lonely thing that if you have the right kind of person in your corner to sort of help keep you on track for what you're trying to accomplish in the work, it can be hugely helpful. So you're not just out there floundering and not knowing where you're going and getting to the muddle in the middle and you can't, you don't know what's going on. So coach and 
uh, author will meet on re you know regular on regular times and turn in pages and sort of get feedback. So it really is a sort of an accountability and coaching kind of a relationship. And um, uh, writers are really learning to appreciate um, that relationship. One of the points I make about a book coach is most editors are dealing with text and a coach is really dealing with holistically with the, the whole writer um, about sort of everything, their motivation, what's the point, you know, um, who you're really writing for, who's your ideal reader, and sort of taking a very holistic approach to the whole project. Well, that's, that's really, really neat. That's different. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I hadn't really, it's interesting because there's a lot of things like that out there that you see, but you kind of go, hmm, what would that really do? Well, now what does that really look like? You know, because I'm sure you've discovered this the moment you publish your book, you get inundated with emails offering you the sun, moon, and stars to mm -hmm. have oh, yes. magical Twitter followings arrive at your doorstep. <laughs> and then you're like, what the hell? So um, what is it like for you to, um, as you're creating a book, are you a plotter? Are you a pantser? Or Because it sounds like you come up with an idea and go, I'm going to write about this thing. Take us on your journey a little bit. Well, for me, it has evolved from book to book. And I am, I'm definitely increasingly a hybrid, which is to say, um, for me, the pantser moments are sort of the magical moments where I may be in the flow and I'm in a scene and I just understand well enough about what's going on that I just, I can just let it go, like let it fly loose and all kinds of new stuff comes up. But I'm increasingly a planner because I'm finding that I take, I write tons of notes on my books. Now, a lot of, I research my books. I bring a lot of fact into my fiction because I used to be a journalist and that just works for me. Um, and I find that if I get really clear on planning and on plotting and, you know, what's really happening, what, you know, how are the scenes building on each other? Who are the, who's the protagonist? What are, what are his or her wants and needs? You know, what are the other, who, what are the other characters doing there? I mean, I just go through a lot of stuff because that's how I, that makes me a better writer. No, that makes sense. What about, um, oh my gosh, I just, in the vodka and I just lost the question. Well, okay. So what about, how has writing been for you from, cause you were writing pre-COVID mm -hmm. and then COVID, like, how was that? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. So in December of 2020, right, we're in month seven of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. That's when I left I had stepped back from full-time to part-time work. Um, and that is when I stepped away from the part-time job because everything came to a grinding halt. I wasn't being, they were paying me, but I'm fortunate to have spousal support. Um, so I'm, I'm fortunate in that way. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I just said to myself, I'm not doing anything for them useful every, anymore. I just, I need to take this time back and just, it's, this is the time I'm going to step into full-time writing. I was so scared. I thought I'd made such a big mistake for weeks. I was like, what did I do? I'm never going to work again. This is terrible. I can't believe I did this, but let me tell you, we're, we're, we're now what two, two, some years past. 
I am so glad I did that. I, I it was a really great decision for me, and I was fortunate that I could make that decision, but it was a big decision at the time. And pre-COVID and now in the latter parts of the COVID or the continuation of COVID, did you do um, in-person signings and stuff? Um, you know, I am desperately trying to get an in books, a bookstore signing now um, for actually both, um, well, the mystery thriller that's coming out. Book signings for romance novels isn't really quite, quite the same thing. Mm -hmm. But for a mystery thriller, it kind, it kind of is. Um, and, you know, it's funny. I now can tell you with some expertise that most of the Barnes & Nobles, for example, are still doing only virtual events. A handful are going back to uh, personal um, in-person events. And the indie bookstores are all over the place. A lot of them are barely gearing back up for in-person. So it's, it's tough. I'm hoping that I've got at least one nailed down for September. Um, but it's it's tough. They're kind of figuring it out. The weird thing is the it? virtual signings. Well, like, well I've done book and block. So yeah. Weird. Yeah. Like I don't understand. Like it just it doesn't make sense to me because I remember like going to get books signed and like I wanted to go because you wanted to like see the author or like ask a question or to just say you had this person sign your book, but like to do it virtually, you're watch watch a freaking them on a podcast you know what I mean like it's it's basically that's what it is and it's very you know, strange I, so I've, I've I've done and I'm doing two more I've done fantastic book and virtual book and blog tours where you get everybody to review the book and blog about it and all that kind of stuff and that's fantastic I never heard of a virtual book signing yes. so how, what how does the signing part happen are you mailing a sign they book buy it through them yeah you buy it through the, the, a lot of what they're doing is you either buy it through um, like uh, some of the indie stores and stuff. They have a specific page that you go to and you purchase the book. And then depending on how many there is, the author signs it, answers questions with like the, it's basically like an interview. So like the, or the couple that I have seen, it's like, if I was like right now, like we're talking and like people are popping up saying, oh, I bought a book. This is what I want you to write, whatever. And you're like, oh, thanks, Erica. Thanks so much. I'm writing your book right now. And then you continue on a conversation with these other people. And those are your virtual signings. Uh, wow. Yeah. Very strange. That's very well, weird. I probably it's, shouldn't say this. I don't really want to do that. I really want to be in a bookstore with people with the book. I really want to do it that way. <laughs> have you ever had a signing at all? Like um, oh, yeah. Um, uh, well, um, because the first two traditionally published books are just coming out, the one just came out in June and one's coming out in August. Um, the only thing I ever had a signing for was I wrote a coffee table book that was a, uh, a 200 year history of Baltimore and the publisher sent me around to stores to do signings and I couldn't believe anybody wanted me to sign that book, but they <laughs> did. <laughs> they did. Um, but, you know, again, with my early YA book, much as I, it's near and dear to my heart, but I never, I didn't really, I mean, I didn't even think about that. Oh, really? That's interesting. What about writer conventions and stuff like that? Have you done a lot of like you, have you set up a tribe at this point? Um, have I set up a tribe? Like, do you have convention? people around you? Do you have a community? Do you, you know, that sort of thing. 
you mean do you mean like street team or you mean just like no just other authors that you interact with oh i interact act with tons of authors yeah we do we do um uh book swaps and review swaps and blurb swaps and all that all that kind of stuff absolutely yeah yeah um, are they did you do you know them in person or did you meet them all online it's all virtual it's all virtual everything everything has been online i mean actually it's actually sunday i am because i'm i'm a writer in residence with us um something called yellow hour publishing um and we all are um uh poets and we're we're actually performing live at uh, the guinness arts and drafts festival um just near baltimore with it's like the real thing with musicians and tents and artists we're actually going to be on the stage doing an actual thing and it's very exciting <laughs> it really is it's a thing right but to your point there's just i mean there's a lot that's just not happening yet people are trying and, and people aren't turning out like i i um uh was doing a grants writing workshop just like two weeks ago and it was back in person and but a lot of people just weren't coming out for stuff i think it is definitely hit or miss it just depends because if you go to um like uh, some of the bigger cons and stuff you're getting you know megacon had the highest number of people in orlando like 114,000 people showed up normally they get about 80,000 you know yeah. um but people are able other, to go out. yeah you know because i think to a degree whether it's correct or not correct people some people are just like i can't i have to go out i have to be around people you know right at this point in time okay we're going to take a quick break we're going to be right back with drinking with authors our sponsor today on drinking with authors is skunk brother spirits skunk brother spirits was started by a family of disabled veterans focused on locally sourced quality distilled spirits their name was inspired by their pops who was nicknamed skunk Gunk's father was a moonshiner in Oregon back when it wasn't exactly legal. Now the brothers are taking the family business legal with their Washington-based team using their grandfather's Prohibition-era moonshine recipe to bring small batch spirits to the gorge and beyond. From the moonshine corn whiskey to the apple pie brandy, all of their spirits are handmade in Washington. Believing they already have the best ingredients in the local community, they work with local farmers and suppliers to produce the highest quality spirits from scratch. You can find them on Facebook at Skunk Brothers and on Twitter at Skunk Bros Inc. Or visit their site www.skunkbrotherspirits.com and use coupon code DWA10 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. You can always also ask your local retailer to start stocking Skunk Brother Spirits. Regardless of how you get your hands on a bottle or two, grab a drink and don't forget to get skunk. Okay, we are back. Um, so you went into journalism. So writing is something you wanted to do since you were super young? Yeah, yes. I think I wrote a short story in second grade about a man in his grocery store. And I just remember showing it to my mother so proudly. And of course, she loved it. Um, <laughs> but as I said earlier, so yeah, I think I do think I gravitated to that really, really early and really young. And there's signposts. I mean, heck, I was an English literature major in college. That was super useful, right? Um, <laughs> but 
Um, well, it depends. Did you want to teach or write books? Like the, the two, two I wanted to. I wanted to read and I wanted to write about what I read, and I had a reputation in college for turning, get, getting all my essays done ahead of deadline because I enjoyed the process so much. So I didn't have, pull any all-nighters because I love. I loved it. Like I didn't need to postpone it. It was. I liked it. So. That's very cool. Did you, but when going into college and getting that degree, were you going, I'm going to go into journalism or did you have a different path? I, you know, well, you know, a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? I should have probably tried to go into journalism, but I, I thought that I was, I had my heart set on, I wanted to be in publishing. And um, I did a little internship with Publishers Weekly at the time. And unfortunately, um, I'm dating myself, but there was a really bad recession in 1980. And I came out into the working world right around then in New York, because I, because New York was the Mecca and I had to be there. And it was really hard to get a job. Now, I'm not trying to make excuses. Should I have pushed harder? Probably. Um, but um, I, I didn't wind up going into publishing, which is what I really wanted to do, even more than journalism. But then I wound up in journalism anyway. Wow. What? Uh, so you're out, you're doing things. What's your first journalism job? Oh, my first journalism job was so sexy. You cannot believe it. It was with Risk Insurance Magazine. And Risk Insurance Magazine was one of those things that used to exist, a trade publication, you know, for people in insurance about which I could not have given two craps. But you know what? The managing editor taught me how to write and how to edit a magazine article. So I learned a great set of skill and how to report, like how to gather information and do it. And she was great. And the, the topics could not have been, there was nothing more boring on earth. Than risk insurance. I can't even tell you what that is now. This was a long time ago, but I, you know, it was a great training ground. No, it sounds like it was a great training ground. So then what kind of, did you get to do what you wanted to journalism rise or did you have to, um, did you end up in further things like risk insurance? <laughs> I got out of the risk insurance business as quickly as I, as I could, but, um, well, I moved around. I was in New York and I was in Boston and um, then I wound up in Baltimore and um, I did wind up with a really um, intense job as a beat reporter on a, um, a daily, uh, a daily newspaper. And I, there were, there were days where I had to file two and three stories um, all properly sourced in the same day. And on top of that, I was responsible for um uh, pumping out at least one major weekend feature a month, I think it was, it was a lot of copy. It was a lot of copy. And I'll tell you, there is no better way to get to this day. I'm a pretty fast writer on the nonfiction side, because once you learn how to sort of kind of bang those out and line up your sources and figure that out, you, you can get pretty fast at it. That was, that was a great set of skills to learn. How is that different? How do you think um, writing, like especially article writing versus, you know, fiction and prose writing, how is that different? I think it's incredibly different because you're, t yes, you're telling a story in 
both forms. You're always telling a story and you want the reader to be interested in the story. But, you know, in a quick take newspaper article, you want to get three sources. You want a really strong lead paragraph and you want to just sort of do that news pyramid, strong lead paragraph, some exposition, the board, then the boring stuff and then wrap it up. And, you know, in fiction, we're really doing a tease with the reader, right? I mean, I want to draw you in to the character's emotional arc and journey, and that's going to take some time, and you're going to come with me on that journey. And, you know, if you're reading a news article, you don't have time for that. So I think it's interesting. And then, then I wrote for public radio, which, excuse me, which is reported public radio. That's a whole different kettle of fish. What is that like then? That's so fascinating because you're writing only for the voice, which is different. You cut out every non-essential preposition. You make your, sh your sentences short and sharp. You say as little as possible. You have to pick your quotes really carefully. And so what I used to do is I'd, I'd go out and spend days reporting a story and recording sources. Then I'd have to work with an editor. Then I'd write script and work with an editor to work in all the what they call actualities, which is the other person's voice, your source's voices, and record your track. And so it's really labor intensive. Um, and then you turn on NPR and you hear yourself and you're like, oh, it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I've never even heard of that. So you, is it you writing a script for yourself to record? Um, you can do it a couple different ways because I, I um, so when you're, when you're freelancing in, in, as a public radio reporter, you have your own recording equipment. You've got your own little mic recording situation. And then I worked with an independent um, um, professional editor uh, much of the time, or I could go down to DC and work in one of their studios. But the point is that you're putting that package together. You have to weed when you, when you listen to a public radio story, remember you're hearing the reporter's voice recorded but that happened in a separate time and place from when they recorded the person they're interviewing. So you have to put it all together. Oh, wow. That's gotta be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's, I haven't actually talked to somebody who's written for that before. Is it, have you done I mean, any script writing for anything else or was that what you did script writing for? Well, aside from the odd little, you know, work-related video here and there, um, I haven't written like a screenplay or that kind of thing, which is a different thing because then you've got the visual stuff. Um, but no, the scripting was really um, um, outside of um, speech because I've done speech writing too. It's been around the block. <laughs> no, it's, it's fascinating. Is there a type of writing you haven't done? Aside I, from screenplays. Right, right. I haven't written for I haven't written specifically for, for television or film. I would say I honestly think I've written for almost almost everything else because I've done magazines and journals and um, you know, press releases and news articles and public radio and executive speech writing and I yeah, and oh congressional testimony and it sort of it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> oh wow. Wow. No, that's so. What is it like doing speech writing? Speech writing, um, it's again you're writing for the voice. Speech writing is absolutely fascinating because you have so many different objectives. Um, when you're writing for a top executive, and I actually wrote for some people um, who were cabinet level officials in D.C., you um, 
you have an important message that you have to get across, but you have to make them sound really sort of smart and passionate and yet not drone on. So again, you're writing like short, sharp, dramatic to the point. You're building in like where they take a breath. You're building in where the pauses go. And it's no wonder that I turned to writing plays, which are also for the voice after I wrote speeches. It's really cool. Oh, wow. So when, when you're writing, I just got to ask this, when you're writing a speech for somebody else, what is that like as far as, um, you know, you're writing for, you know, very non-stuffy, can't say it with a straight face, um, not stuffy people doing things. What is that like putting that together? So, you know, everybody, one people often think is, well, don't you have to write for that person's quote unquote voice? And while, while if you work with someone long enough, you may write, you may write speeches in a way that you know they're comfortable saying, but honestly, if you stay true to the form and the message, anybody can deliver a good speech. Now, I will, I will tell you something um, without naming any names. I wrote a lot of speeches for a person who was very poor at reading speeches. <laughs> so this was a person who had no natural instinct for bringing the words alive off the page didn't have like a musical ear because, you know, it's really like music in that there's pauses and breaths and places where you speed up and places where you slow down and places where you, you know, you, and like in music. And some people um, are really, really good at reading a speech like that. And other people, I feel like they just don't have a musical ear and they just don't know what word to land on. And it doesn't matter what you do on the page. They never do it that way. Um, so it's a very interesting experience. That's got to, I, I would say it's got to be weird. Um, when you're writing speeches for somebody, how are you given the information or do they go, hey, write a speech about the Drinking with Authors podcast and just let you have at it? No, usually, particularly because so much speech writing is either in the corporate world or the political world. And so in both cases, you have an extremely clear agenda um, and you and you're you're both being told what points to get across and you're getting the information that you need to make those points. So it's part research, part instruction and part art so that you're give you're putting the words in their mouth to really get that key point across. Oh. This is fascinating. I have never talked to a speechwriter ever. Yeah. Charles, you, you going to say something. What were you going to say? It's so weird. No, it's just, it's one of those where like, you know, you go through or try to figure out what you haven't written in. And like, I, I think the only thing we settled in, you don't work with TV and film yet. Yeah. True. No, absolutely. I mean, writing for speeches and radios and magazines. What was your favorite out of all of those that you have done? What was your favorite job? Um, I, I actually, although it was, it was extraordinarily stressful when, when you take the stress out of it, I love speech writing. I love, even though it's odd to say that as someone who, you know, I make up my own words, I mean, my, my own stuff, right? I write my own stories, but I love, when you have to get a message across and you want to give that person 
a really powerful way of say of saying it because it it is like writing a mini play or well, a monologue okay a monologue so if you love writing plays a speech is like a monologue it's just that you're dealing in facts but you're also trying to motivate people to feel something and often there's a call to action so it it really is an art form and it's really fun to do when you when you when you can do a good job so let's talk about i mean there, i feel like i'm learning all kinds of stuff on this podcast it doesn't happen yeah. every podcast. it's very bizarre so let's <laughs> let's do a little let's we'll do a turnabout about what your writing environment is like what is your ideal writing environment? Since you've done all these different kinds of writing, and right. I'm sure you run around as a journalist, like scribbling quickly, yelling at people about the story when needs to go in. So what is your ideal writing environment like? Well, as a journalist, I got yelled at. I didn't get to do the yelling. Um, my ideal writing environment is the one that I have right now, which is I am literally sitting at the end of my dining room table, which is my office with my laptop and my pen and my notebook and of course my glass of wine and my my camera and this is it because um i have just the right amount of light just the right amount of space when i left the formal working world i said to myself i never want an office again and i i you know we have a home office and it's my husband's little man cave and that's fine i don't want an office i like the the freedom to just kind of be loose. You listen to music. You I cannot, I love music. I cannot write and listen to music at the same time. My brain goes to the music and stops doing anything else. Okay. And before the, before the pandemic, I, there were many afternoons where I would go to a coffee shop, like a really well air conditioned coffee shop in the summer and sit there happily and let all that white noise like help me. I haven't done that though. I'm just, I'm not comfortable yet. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay. So what are you working on now? Tell us about what books you're working on now. Well, <clears throat> I, I don't want to say too much, but I am working on um, a, a literary novel that I'm trying to do something really, really, really tricky. I'm trying to tell a very specific story through six characters and each chapter is in one character's pov but you're not confused because it's really clear chapter to chapter who you who you are with because it says at the top and there's other writers who do you know who does this elon hildebrand the best-selling novelist who writes a lot of books like about from nantucket and stuff mm -hmm. she does this really well so each and if you look at the table of contents of one of her books it's and i'm making up names it's like the chapters are like Jack, Jill, Sam, Nancy, Jack, Jill, Sam, Nancy, Jack, Jill, Sam. It's like she's doing this in like these alternating point of views of and but but everything's like interweaving. So I'm trying to do that. And I'm talking about planning. This takes a huge amount of planning. So I'm it's very slow. That's actually super popular nowadays is everybody really likes to take a, a situation and have like the two main characters or whatever they are and they yeah. bounce between the two and it's actually it's a lot of fun to read if they do it right yeah this the challenges my gosh as i'm learning there's you have like continuity challenges because if in if you're overlap you're overlapping time so like two different characters might be living in 
their lives in, let's say, this the same day at the same time as each other, but they don't know each other, but things are happening that affect each other. Like you have to manage who knows what, when, and where they are in time and space in their separate chapters so that when when something has to collide or interact, it's they know it at the right time. It's hard to explain, but I'm finding I'm finding out how complicated it is. Because these six, they're not in a vacuum. The point is that there are inter there's collisions and interactions and just, and things that they know at different times. Um, it's really complicated. I probably should I probably should have my head examined, but you know. Well, you know, it seems like that you do a challenge to yourself a bit on this because also hopping genres tends to do that because it's yeah. not that a, it doesn't, you know, generalized story arc that occurs, right? There's a generalized, we're a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's technical. People should write that down that I said that. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you go into a mystery versus a young adult book versus a paranormal romance, like these are all different things. Do you think part of this is that there's a challenge in it for you from having done writing for so long? that you, you want to push your, like learn something while you're doing the process of it or challenge yourself. I don't know how to be in the vodka. I don't know how to word it. You know, no, you're doing, you're doing great. I do. I do love learn. I do love the learning process of it. I do. You know what I really love? What I love is looking at the tropes in a particular genre and then saying to myself, okay, if I'm going to call, if it, if this is a YA fantasy or if this is a romance or if this is mystery thriller, I have to honor some tropes of that genre. However, I'm going to absolutely make it my own. I'm not going to fall into all the cliches. And I, and I will say, I really, I will say that I think, I think, I do think I achieved that. I mean, I've talked to people a lot about this romance, the Nighthawkers and people who read it, it's, it's people who don't read re romance and read it, including men go, oh, that wasn't what I expected. I really liked it. And like, uh-huh, because you saw the word romance, you thought it was going to be this certain thing. Now, is it a romance? It sure is. It's about, you know, there's key romantic relationship. It's got a happily ever after. Um, there's got, there's sex in it. You know, there's, th there are things it's, you know, there's a lot of relationship focus and I don't want to give a lot away because other things happen, but, um, I think I managed to also surprise you. And the mystery thriller that's coming out this summer in August, the Potrero Complex, I know I'm going to surprise you because, as I like to say, this is not a toe tag mystery. Oh, no, no, no. This is a lot that's going on uh, in, with some social change issues and some upheaval and, and things and, and um, uh, sort of dark forces. And uh, the mystery is um, more like the the result of these things that are happening um, in a small town, not, you know, not just the driving, not just the driving force of the story. That's very cool. Okay. Um, question, and then you're going to do some shameless self-promotion. Is there anything you don't want to write? Like, is there anything you're like, I'm not going into that genre? I will never write horror. That's for sure. <laughs> and I, and I will. <laughs> And I will never write cozy anything. And and please and and I I want to say, just because these are not genres I'm drawn to, I am not throwing shade on what anyone else writes, 
Um, people do brilliant work in every genre. I'm just saying these are the ones, these are not right for me. Um, no, that makes sense. And I, I won't write comedy because I, while once in a while I might do something that's a little bit funny, I don't write funny. I think writing funny is like a mystery. I will, ne I'll never figure that out. It, it, so, you know, it's, I, I, people do not get a, give enough credit. I write horror that doesn't have a lot of humor in it, but I write um, humorous erotica, right? That's another genre I write under a different pen name. And I think people don't give enough credit to what it takes to write and perform comedy versus drama. Not that it's not, but I think comedy tends to be something that's very overlooked. The ability to deliver something that makes people laugh, especially in writing, makes people laugh or stuff like that. It's not an easy thing to do. I so agree. I so agree. And, um, you know, my thing, the thing for the, th you know, I don't watch horror movies either. The truth is that stuff just, stuff just scares me too much. And I, I, um, I've seen plenty of movies with gore in it, but I don't seek it out. Um, I do think it's a, having written paranormal, you know, you can, you can begin to like tip into all these different lines. And, you know, I have a novella that's, um, um, a paranormal romance that's about a ghost. I I like ghosts. I could see writing more about ghosts. I love ghosts because ghosts can be and do anything that you want. I like that. No, that's very true. Very true. Okay, shameless self-promotion time. Uh, talk, talk about your latest release and how people can find you on the social medias and stuff. Thank you very much. Um, the Nighthawkers is a paranormal romance about an archaeologist who must choose between her handsome first lover and the irresistible stranger who helps her discover a powerful destiny. And The Nighthawkers is available in all the usual places, Amazon Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and uh, all my books are on uh, my website, amywrites.live, A-M-Y-W-R-I-T-E-S, amywrites.live. Very, very cool. Amy, you have been an amazing guest. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. This has been really, really fun. And I love the fact that I get to drink my wine in the open while we're talking. No, I, this is part of the reason we do it. Oh my goodness. Okay. So guys, this has been Drinking with Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lambs. My co-host today has been the not quite asking questions, but I'm going to put her on the spot in the next episode, C.R. Rice. And you're going to Yes, that's, that's where we're going. And the fabulous, amazing, multi-writing, talented Amy Bernstein learned so much today. Our sponsor today, totally forgot this at the beginning, Scott Brothers Spirits, I'm doing so great. DWA 10 is the that you can use and we will catch you guys next time.